Welcome to LOA Today. I'm Walt Thiessen, and I'm here alone. <laughs> but that's okay. This is your Daily Dose of Happy, and I'm so happy you decided to be here today. I was uh, kind of caught by surprise because um, Amy is unable to uh, do the show today because her husband isn't doing well, so she needs to spend the day taking care of him. And Louie, I saw him online, and he's not showing up to do the show, and I don't know why. So... I thought to myself, this is a really interesting circumstance because I had been wargaming, if you will, the idea of trying to do an episode by myself just so I could practice doing a talk that I'm preparing to give to uh, to college students. That's my aim is to uh, be able to give talks to college students. And um, all of a sudden, my wish came true. <laughs> so, <laughs> be careful what you wish for, I guess, is the old adage. But... Uh, you know what? I'm going to go for it. Uh, I don't, this is not a complete talk in the sense that I haven't edited everything out and so forth. It's got a lot of work to be done on it, but I figure, hey, let's give it a chance and, you know, see uh, what I've got so far. And uh, if you have feedback after, uh, after you hear this episode, send your feedback in because um, I'd like to hear what you think about it. Um, it's a work in progress. This is not yet done, but hey, let's, let's try it. Let's see what we get. So, Anyway, let's assume that I'm now talking to a group of uh, college students, and the topic that I'm addressing is dealing with pressures and stresses and anxieties um, during the age of COVID and while in college, which is a very long title. Obviously, that needs to be edited, too. <laughs> but <laughs> anyway, here we go. So here's how it starts. It says, and by the way, I'm going to be reading this so because this is not in any way, you know, a done project. I'm still, I'm still hammering it all out and I don't know the speech by heart yet or anything like that. Um, but here we go. So in 2006, Harvard University offered their first ever positive psychology class. Over 1,400 students signed up for it, an all-time record at Harvard. In 2018, Yale University first offered a class called Psychology and the Good Life and over 1,200 students signed up for it. Again, an all-time record this time for Yale. So why did so many students sign up for these courses? Well, for many of the listeners of the speech, the, the answer is obvious. Those students felt tremendous levels of pressure and stress in their lives. And it's not just Ivy League students that are feeling it. Now, to make matters worse, we now live in the age of COVID, which takes all the above and amplifies it about, you know, 10 times over. So tell me if any of these stories that I'm about to read to you, told by college students, sound familiar to you? Uh, first one comes from Drew from the University of Pittsburgh, who said, I posted a pic on Instagram on my 20th birthday. It's not a genuine smile. My boyfriend had broken up with me about three months earlier. We'd started dating in high school, so everyone, plus all my college friends and all of his friends at school, too, knew about it. People thought I was doing badly, which I was. So my hope was that people would see me looking pretty and happy. I even made the pic my profile picture on Facebook for a while. She goes on to say, my anxiety and depression probably originated with the breakup, but then they spiraled. I started having panic attacks whenever I felt pressure to have fun. I had a panic attack in the middle of a set at a Firefly music festival because I was so overwhelmed by the crowd. I posted a picture the next day like everything was fine. So there's one. Here's another one. This is Gina, a student at Cornell University who wrote, I was at a friend's place on campus and we found these fun party hats, so we started taking pictures with them. Today, these people are some of my closest friends, but that period of my life was a pretty lonely time. I was social, people seemed to like me, but I still felt very alone. 
I think I took the picture to prove to myself that I was having a good time at Cornell and to reassure my NYU friends who knew me as a social and happy person that I was having fun. And she goes on to say, there's this expectation that college is supposed to be the best four years of your life, but anxiety can happen to anyone, even people who are social. That's a particularly interesting point that she raises. We'll bring that one up in, in a few moments. Uh, also from Cornell, we have Jenna who said, I was on a wine tour with my friends trying to be happy, although I'd spent half the day crying. I was stressed over finals, worried about moving out of my college town apartment, sad about my friends graduating and leaving, and terribly sad about my breakup with my boyfriend that week. I posted a photo because it was the first moment in the entire week when I found myself smiling. And when I posted it, I subconsciously hoped that I could convince others that I was happy. And maybe then I could believe it myself. I definitely felt, she said, like I was under a lot of pressure in college, but it was self-imposed more than anything else. I used to say things like, I am a privileged American white woman in an Ivy League institution. I don't have a right to be unhappy. How could I be unhappy when I had so much? Here's some more stories. These are from 2020, the ones that are coming up next, by the way. This is from Allison, who uh, attends the Rockhurst University in Missouri. She says, the pressures of judging yourself based on, on what your friends are currently doing is hard. I'm also constantly judging myself, and I truly do not see worth in myself, especially when it comes to dating. I'll find a nice guy and convince myself that I am repulsive and undesirable, and therefore I ruin a chance for it to become a relationship. Seeing other friends getting engaged, having a relationship really stresses me out. Finally, the thought of what I'm doing after school, where I'm going to live and paying off student loans, even though I can for sure knock them out in less than a year, she says, that also does it. Uh, another one from Haley, this is from the University of South Florida. She says, I just graduated college a few weeks ago with a bachelor's degree. Graduating during a pandemic has been no easy task in terms of the 3D, the job market is awful. Everyone I know who has graduated over the past six months is struggling to find a job in every single field. It's been making me very depressed. But she says, I've been continuing to do LOA techniques, affirmations, shadow work, ignoring 3D, visualizations, etc. In college, the main stressors I dealt with were due to finances and health issues. On top of both school and working full time, these were very hard to manage, she says. If I could go back, I'd tell myself to work on my self-concept. I'd also use my resources more. Included in the cost of school was free therapy, free gym membership, yoga classes, career services, life coaching, and so forth. And she says, I wish I'd utilized these services more while I had the chance. And then from across the ocean, from the University of Winchester, we have Holly, who said, I think right now my biggest stress is the grades. Despite the pandemic and lockdowns, there's no leniency or anything on the workload we are given. In fact, it's more because we're at home, but that doesn't make sense because we aren't getting the usual face-to-face -face contact. It's really hard juggling all this work and staying sane, she writes. I think if they gave tips on, some, on time management and organization, that would help with stress a lot. And there's more. I mean, I have a whole collection of these comments and, and inputs from students, real college students, who are dealing with all kinds of stresses at the college level. So I'm going to flip through a bunch of them here because I actually have more than I can use in a talk. Um, but I'm going to go fast forward or perhaps I guess I, guess I should say kind of flip backward um, to my story. Um, obviously, you can see from looking at me, it's been quite a few decades since I've been in college. But I wanted to share this story in part because uh, I want to show you that stresses have, the, the contents 
of stresses may have changed over the years, but the intensity of stress and pressures for college students hasn't changed all that much. And I think my story will perhaps start to illustrate some of the reasons why that is true. We, we already saw some of, it, of the reasons in the uh, uh, stories that we've already been given by current college students, but I think you'll even hear more from my own story. So let me tell you my story. You tell me if this sounds in any way familiar if you're in college right now. I graduated from high school in 1975, yes, back in the Stone Age. The country was still recovering from Watergate and from Nixon's resignation. The Vietnam War had just ended after more than 50,000 U.S. soldiers had died, 300,000 wounded. And it would be no overstatement to say that the country was still in collective shock, and I would even say depression. After completing my 12 years of school, I really had no idea what to do with the rest of my life. I knew only that I was expected to go to college and that it would give me a good career in some vaguely undefined way that I couldn't see yet. Now, there was no internet, no smartphones, no laptops or desktops, and the only computers I had ever seen in person were dumb terminals in one of my high school's unused classrooms connected to a small mainframe computer at a nearby state university used on a timeshare basis. You had to know the computer programming language called BASIC in order to get any use out of them. I was one of the only people in the school who knew how to use them. But I had no idea what career options were open to me. Most such information simply wasn't available. All I knew is you could be a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant, an engineer, a teacher, a blue collar worker, or one of a handful of other career options that my guidance counselor had given to me. Now, this was the same guidance counselor whom I'd met on just one other occasion in my entire life for 15 minutes. From these tidbits of information, I was supposed to map out my life. Uh, even worse, I had no idea what sparked me, what my passions in life would be. I had no passions at all. For my entire time at public school, I was just a tall, skinny, shy wallflower who rarely spoke to anybody. I was scared of my own shadow. My school years were not happy years. And to the contrary, looking back, I, I now know that I felt powerless and aimless. I had decent grades and decent SAT scores, and I was admitted to the State University of New York at Buffalo, which had an enrollment at the time of around 25,000. I think it's close to 30,000 now. My parents and I visited the school, but I had no idea upon what criteria I should make a decision. And as it turned out, my parents didn't know either. So I accepted when I arrived during freshman orientation, which amounted to nothing more than getting assigned your room and filling out a few forms, I found that I had been assigned to a four-man room. That's right. I was to spend my freshman year with not one, not two, but three roommates all in the same room, roommates whom I knew nothing about. And when my parents left me that day, I can tell you I felt pretty darned alone. But that wasn't the worst of it. The worst of it came when I met my new roommates. All three of them were from Long Island. I was from Schenectady, New York. So they were the sophisticates from New York City. I was the hick from the sticks. Two of the three were from Massapequa, New York, near Amityville. That's the site of the Amityville Horror, for those who know that history. Uh, both of them were named Jeff, and I didn't know it yet, but they were about to make my life even more miserable because, as it turned out, Jeff and Jeff quickly became the biggest drug dealers on campus. My third roommate was a guy from East Meadow named Harry. I got along with Harry well enough, but it wasn't enough to overcome the Jeff and Jeff influence. Starting from the first day of classes, the two Jeffs began holding parties in our room every night. 
The parties were chock full of drugs and alcohol and lasted well past midnight every night with blazing, uh, sorry, with blaring music and crowds of people I'd never seen before. Our resident advisor on the floor was absolutely useless. Apart from a first day introduction, she was never around to give me help. And quite frankly, I was kind of scared to ask for help anyway. So I lived that first semester in terror, really. There was a huge freshman class that year, and I did uh, inquire of the housing office to see if I could get another room, but no other rooms were available. There were just so many students. I was terrified of the idea of reporting my roommates to the authorities for the drugs, and I was terrified of going to my room each day. Nor did I say anything to my parents because I was vaguely afraid that somehow it was all my fault. So despite being perpetually sleep-deprived, I threw myself into my studies, and I somehow managed to get three A's and a B that first semester. But I was unraveling psychologically. The two Jeffs not only displayed no respect for me or for my share of the room, but they were constantly playing practical jokes on me, calling me names, generally making fun of me. And as a matter of mental survival, I looked for anything I could find to try to connect with them to try to make peace. I played guitar, and one of the Jeffs also played guitar, so I tried jamming with him a couple of times. Well, that didn't work really well because their inter his interest in music and my interest in music were for entirely different musical styles. We had nothing in common. I tried learning his favorite music, and that started to create a small bridge between us. Now, they were still disrespectful toward me, but at least they were a bit kinder about it than before. I'd never heard of the Grateful Dead before, but at least I knew how that felt. <laughs> the Grateful Dead was a perfect metaphor for my life with Jeff and Jeff. I remember one day coming back to our room to find one of the Jeffs outside blocking me and Harry from entering our own room. Apparently, the other Jeff was having sex with a girl in our room. So, of course, that meant our lives had to be disrupted in order to accommodate him, despite the fact that Jeff hadn't bothered to clear it with either Harry or me first. We were second-class citizens in our own room. Now, that was the first and last time I saw the girl, by the way. Never saw her again. By the time first semester finals were about to arrive, I was doing well enough academically, but mentally I was in danger of a total breakdown. I didn't know of any existing student services that could have helped. Most of them didn't exist then that exist now. If an infirmary did exist, I didn't know where it was. I did discover a so-called health office one time, but the door was locked. No one answered my, my knock, so gave up on that one. Interestingly enough, my roommates were supposedly pre-med students. I guess they figured that they might as well study pharmaceuticals first, but it was apparent to everyone in the dorm that they weren't going to get past organic chemistry with a passing grade. Still, they did attempt to cram for that organic chem final at the last minute. Um, there was no nightly party early in the evening. That was pretty unusual, and that was for about three or four nights in a row. But the party wasn't canceled. It was only delayed until very late each night and was therefore more intense than ever before because they had more to burn off. I was close to collapse. Halfway through their cram sessions each night, the Jeffs took a break to smoke some pot. One night they offered some to me. Now, up until then, I'd always refused. But that one night, I desperately needed some semblance of support. So I accepted. And that got me some degree of acceptance by them. Accepting more drugs led to more acceptance by the two Jeffs, and after finals were over, my roommates were beginning to conclude that pre-med might not be their calling, but it didn't help me very much. After Christmas break, they picked me up on the way back to school. What I didn't know is that they had about $10,000 to $15,000 worth of drugs in the trunk of the car. 
At today's prices, that would be around $60,000 to $90,000 worth of drugs. This was at a time when being arrested for possession of one ounce of marijuana was good for a very long vacation in New York State's prison system. What I did know is that they were passing joints around the car. At one point, while on the New York State Thruway, I looked at the dashboard from my backseat view and saw that the Jeff who was driving the car was both stoned out of his mind and driving at about 85 miles an hour. Our car zoomed past a state trooper's car in the right lane, and I thought for sure I was going to prison. But then something amazing happened. Instead of pulling us over, and to this day I don't know why this happened, the trooper sped up, turned on his high beams, and turned on his loudspeaker on the car. And then he said, turn down your high beams, slow down, and get behind me. Now Jeff, the driver, was oblivious because he was so... Uh, drug-induced, uh, stupid, as it, as it were, and uh, he didn't hear the trooper. So basically, sheer terror overcame me, and I shouted as loud as I could in his ear, Jeff, there's a state trooper behind you. He's ordering you to slow down, turn down your high beams, and get behind him. Well, that did it. Jeff actually woke up enough to comply, and amazingly, we never got pulled over. Contrary to what drug educators in high school had taught me, it wasn't the softer drugs that led to the harder drugs. It was intense pressures, general stress, and gaining a small level of acceptance from my live-in partying terrorists, I don't know how else to say it, by joining their partying that led to drugs of all kinds. I was exposed to a large assortment of illegal drugs, and I'm glad I survived. My grade point average, however, did not survive. I went from A's and B's the first semester to C's and D's the second semester, and it's a miracle I didn't fail any of them that second semester. So that's my freshman year in a nutshell. I really couldn't stand any more idea of three years at Buffalo and ended up transferring to Colgate University, but I think you can get the sense that uh, I had some idea of what stress and pressure were like. So now that you know that I know what it's like to feel stress and pressure and anxiety and even depression when in college, let's figure out what to do about it. It turns out that you only need to keep two rules in mind in order to successfully overcome stress, pressure, anxiety, and even depression. The first rule is that there is an inverse proportional relationship between stress and self-love. That's right. The more self-love you feel, the less stress that affects you. The less self-love you feel, the more that stress affects you. That's pretty simple. Now, the second rule, that's the first rule. The second rule is to increase your self-love, you increase the amount of time and attention that you give to focusing your attention on what feels really good to you about you. The more that you focus on what feels really good to you, the more your self-love will increase. Now, I could end my talk right here, but it wouldn't do you much good because despite the fact that you have some understanding of the two rules to keep in mind in order to overcome stress and pressure, it's extremely unlikely that you'll do anything about it. How do I know? Because that's what most people do when they know the rules. They forget that self-love defeats stress and they forget to focus their attention more on what feels really better to them once they get back to their normal everyday lives. We humans are beings of habit. We will usually follow our habits no matter what, even if they lead us over a cliff's edge. So it takes a concerted effort to change our habits. And fortunately, that's something we have the power to do. So let's do it right now. A study conducted by the American College Health Association and the Healthy Minds Network surveyed about 18,000 students. Oh, and I'm gonna skip this part because that's really not relevant to what I was going to do next. So 
bear with me. See, like I said, this is a, a speech that's in progress and it's not totally edited and worked out the way I needed to. Okay, so this squirrel passed all that, passed all that. I have a lot of words in this thing. Okay, so, okay. Um, so I find I have some evidence that uh, self-love has been found in studies to uh, improve our ability to deal with this stuff, yada, yada, get past that. Other things we can do, good diet, exercise, yada, yada. That's not my main stuff that I want to talk about in the talk. Okay, here we go. Now, of course, I'm reminded of what Gina at Cornell told us earlier. She said, I think there's this stereotype that depression or, or deep loneliness only happens to people in tough situations, people who lack friends or are socially awkward. And she described herself as socially active, yet she experienced depression. So the question is, how could this be? Sean Aker, who was a teaching assistant for that Harvard University course I mentioned, is one of the advocates of um, social connectedness. He's also an advocate for positive psychology. And he wrote in his best-selling book, The Happiness Advantage, that the correlation between social connectedness and leading a happy life is about twice as big as the link between cigarette smoking and cancer. So again, I ask, why is it that some people who feel that they are socially connected still end up suffering depression? Turns out that the answer has to do with the quality of the social connectedness. Remember what Gina said? She said, I was social. People seemed to like me, but I, but I still felt very alone. She was socially active, but she wasn't deeply connected. And that is why she felt so alone. It's not a new phenomenon. It's not limited to the era of social media, although some modern researchers will try to convince you of that. And they may have the PhDs, but I have the facts on my side, let me tell you. No, this is something that's been going on for generations. Um, I can point to something that was studied in the 1950s and 1960s called the Rosetto effect, which uh, basically describes this exact phenomenon that I'm talking about here, this social connectedness depth phenomenon. In the mid 50s and 60s, long before the age of computers and social media, the people of a small town called Rosetto, Pennsylvania, population 1600, experienced no heart attacks, none at all. And this was phenomenal, considering that heart attacks were the number one killer of humans in the 50s and 60s. Oh, I see Louis trying to get in here. Let me see if I can get him in here. What was even more amazing is that the townspeople did everything wrong by today's standards. Their diets were high carb, high cholesterol, high fat diets. They didn't exercise. They worked in high stress jobs in the steel factories and other high risk industries. They smoked cigars and cigarettes. They drank excessive amounts of alcohol, yet they still managed to have almost no heart attacks. Dramatically fewer numbers per thousand than the rest of the country experienced at that time. So researchers from the university descended upon Rosetto to try to find out why this was happening. Rosetto started as a small residential enclave in rural Pennsylvania, founded by Italian immigrants in 1912. It's located about 75 miles west of New York City, and about 30 miles north of uh, Allentown, Pennsylvania, where the huge steel factories were located at the time. The researchers checked every possible cause for the low heart attack rate that they could think of to check. They asked hundreds of questions of virtually everyone who lived in the town at that time. And when they were done, they concluded that the low rate for heart attacks in Rosetta was due to one factor, social cohesiveness. All the families in Rosetta in the 50s and 60s knew each other. They'd grown up together. Many of their families had arrived at Ellis Island in New York at the turn of the century together. Italian immigrants were often appalled at the lack of community they encountered in America. Many actually returned to their mother country because of this lack, 
and those who stayed often tried to maintain their way of living, and that's why the people of Rosetta had such good health. They maintained and grew their social connections. They all knew each other. They spent their free time together. They hung out together. Their children grew up together. They worked together. They played together. They cared deeply about each other. They lived and loved life together. So I'm going to interrupt my talk there. Uh, Louis, I, I actually decided to start doing an experiment when uh, you weren't able to join me right off. So I started uh, doing my talk that I've been preparing, even though it's not ready yet. It's kind of a practice session. That's what you kind of walked into the middle of here. Fantastic. Uh, as I'm a Toastmaster, I, 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 will, I will listen in carefully and give you some constructive uh, criticism. <laughs> I am not hearing your voice. I don't know what's going on. Let's see. Whoops. <laughs> Got all kinds of things going wrong here. Hold on a second. Try again. Can I hear you now? Testing? Uh, nope, I'm not hearing you. Okay. Let me go into well, the settings. Tell you what, I'm going to continue to... Uh, talk a little bit about my talk on when you're connected and you think you got the audio working, test me. And once I hear you, we can pick it up. But uh, for those of can you who listen to the talk, what uh, I was going to do next in the talk was I was going to start doing some practical demonstrations uh, because ultimately, if, if you want to change the way that uh, you're feeling about yourself, you have to do some work on yourself. Otherwise, it's just not going to happen without your direct participation. So the first thing I will recommend to my listening audience will be to suggest that they do something that they're very used to because they're college students. Get out their smartphones. Some of them obviously would be listening on the smartphones already if it was a virtual presentation. But get out the smartphones, go into the camera mode, and uh, change it over to selfie mode like they're taking a selfie photo because that creates the illusion of looking into a mirror. It's basically like having your own personal mirror. <clears throat> and uh, then I would suggest to them do some mirror exercises, which we've, of course, talked about here on the show. Um, but basically, you tell yourself, just looking in your own eyes, how much you're proud of yourself and how much you love yourself and how much you care about yourself and talk about the things that are going right and so forth. And then I would actually have the students do that as part of the, the demonstration. Um, then I go on to uh, do some other demonstrations. Another thing I can do that, that any person can do at any time with a, with a smartphone, same thing, is just to smile at oneself. And look in one's own eyes as one is smiling at oneself. It's amazing how that can actually have a buildup. It can have a powerful impact on who we are and how we feel. Um, there are things that we can do without smartphones, of course. Um, many of them have to do with um, just, you know, the basic things about taking care of ourselves, uh, eating right, sleeping right, um, you know, drinking enough uh, good liquid water and uh doing breathing exercise and meditation. These are all things that I could bring up in the talk and I would bring up in the talk. And I'd basically be giving them a number of things to practice while we were doing um, this presentation. And then I would conclude with uh, recommendations about uh, different resources they can go to and might even come up with like an alternative, um, like a, an online automated class or something like that that they could tap into on a daily basis where they could do their affirmations in a group. I haven't quite figured out how that works. But uh, that's the gist of what I have been uh, putting together for my talk. It's like I, I gave you about 45% uh, of it. There's, there's a whole bunch more, and obviously it needs some, some editing down. But um, that was it. So it, Louis looks like he's struggling there. I don't think he's got the – have you got it figured um, out yet? I, I can't tell if you can hear me or not. I'm not hearing you yet oh, at all. Okay. Um, 
Let me just try. I'm going to try flipping speakers over and see if that makes a difference. Saying something. Testing, testing. Ah, I'm getting something there. I'll, I'll get off of this. Let's see if that helps. Hello. Try once more. Testing, testing. Ah, there we go. Okay, now I got you. Uh, you need different headphones. How does that work? Well, I don't know. If it, I don't know if it was the headphones or if it was the setup. There was something that was not screw, not right. There it was a little screwy, but hey, that's right. So glad you can make it. Good to see you. Yeah, sorry about that. Well, that's all right. Well, it's like I said when I started the podcast. I figured that this this was something I'd actually thought about. I said, you know, if if there comes a time sometime in the near future where a co-host can't make it, the last minute or something like that, I should just use the podcast as an opportunity to practice my talk that I'm putting together. Um, now, I said that at a point where I hadn't actually finished putting the talk together. I was still working on the outline. And then all of a sudden, here you were not there to start doing the podcast. I said, well, I guess it's been thrust upon me. <laughs> but I grabbed the bull by the horns and said, let's give it a shot. So, As, as I've done uh, Toastmasters, I was uh, keen to to give you some Toastmaster feedback. I was oh, I'm sure you would. I, I, was, I was just trying to get through the talk. I wasn't trying to do it clean. I was just doing a little practice. No, no, no. I mean, it, it really helps when, when somebody's... Um, guiding you the way they do in Toastmasters because what they do is afterwards they give you uh, commend, uh, recommend, commend. So okay. they'll give you something they liked, they'll give you something which you can improve on, and then they'll give you something that um, something else that they liked about it. Okay. And, uh, um, they also count your ums and ahs and <laughs> all those kind of things. <laughs> yeah, that's the one thing that I, I, I've heard that about Toastmasters, and it always seemed to me like, you know, there's so many things that are important in a speech. Unless somebody is umming and awing all over the place, why would you want to even focus attention on that? But that's what they like to do, so whatever. No, I, I found it quite useful because it reduced bums and ahs tremendously. Well, yeah, I mean. In, in, in the beginning, you're focusing on basics and all the rest of it, and then you can start picking up on the ums and ahs. You don't have to do it in the beginning. You do it when you further on down the line, yeah. Yeah, it, well, I mean, it. it what, I forget what they call that, but it's basically um, – using unpleasant feedback to wean yourself off of a, a, a not good habit. I understand what that's all about. Yeah. I just, I, I don't know. I, I have different priorities when it comes to listening or, or, or talking to uh, somebody about a talk. I mean, you know, you know, I started about, did I enjoy about... it? Did, did I think about it? Did, we, did, the, did the speaker get me thinking about something? Was I engaged? That to me is what it's about. The ums and no, absolutely, are like, okay. but you can polish it more and more and more, can't you? Well, you know what the best way to polish a talk is, though? You keep giving yeah. the talk. I mean, that, that, there, there's no better way to do it than to just keep talking and talking and talking. Now, if you're not trying to improve each time, I guess you're not going to get a whole lot better. But I, I think even then you'll get a little bit better just because you're doing it over and over again. There's so many dimensions to it, the way you look at an audience, the uh, volume that you change up and down, the, mm. uh, you know, there's so many nuances which they bring in every single time you do a talk, you, you're adding another dimension to it. And it's really mm -hmm. cool. Uh, the ums and ahs is just something they do from beginning to end. And it's really interesting. Naturally, you watch in the beginning how many ums and ahs you did. And then you look at the end, how many ums and ahs yeah, you did. Sure. And it's, and it's, yeah. and it's great to see the progression along the way. And of course, every subject's two subjects. If you look at ums and ahs as, you know, how many times you're fluently uh, speaking rather than focusing on the ums and ahs. Um, 
you 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 know you're on the right track as far as LOA is concerned, which is what we always what we here to talk about. And uh, you know they they really are supportive. I, I highly recommend um, Toastmasters, and it's mm-hmm. usually a group near anybody in the West. Oh yeah, <laughs> you're, they're, they're if all you're in the, the UK. Here. They're in every town almost. Yeah. They're, um, they're all over America. They're all over the place. And they're oh, just yes. a bunch of group of people who are really supportive. And uh, That's I've good. watched people who, who've gone up from totally shy and, and, and unpolished to somebody who's like absolutely excellent after the year's finished. And uh, it's, it's really amazing. It, they say it's one of the two things that are the scariest for people to do. What is it? Public speaking and... Divorce is there a number two? I'm not know. sure. <laughs> Divorce or something? I don't know. <laughs> moving house. I think moving house is the other one. <laughs> is that the other one? Oh, okay. Yeah. Those are the two most. Uh, no, that's stressful. I don't know. Maybe scared. going to college. That was the topic of my my talk anyway. So maybe that's on the list. Who knows? Yeah. No, great. Um, what was it about? About dealing with stresses and pressures in college. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. That would have been interesting yeah. to listen to. I'll listen back to it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I did. I mean, part of the reason I did this is I wanted to kind of gameplay how much material do I have here? Because, I mean, basically what I have right now, I know is not it's not a well-formulated talk. It's a bunch of stuff all spewed out on hmm. page. I probably have like, you know, an hour and a half or two hours worth of material for a 45-minute talk. You know, so it needs a little editing to be sure. But I just wanted to see how how it would flow, what I had so far. Would it work? And some of it I like. Some of it needs a little work, but I like some of it. So it was a worthwhile exercise. You know, Walt, when I was at school, there were some teachers that really had passion and they enjoyed sharing it. And I loved those teachers, you know, absolutely loved them. And then there were the teachers that did it because this is a job that paid them some money. And oh, I yes. was totally uninterested in those guys. I just completely zoned out and went to another Well, planet. you can tell the difference. Easily, easily. Anybody yeah. can. And, oh, yeah. uh, the, the important thing I learned from that is I don't care if the guy's talking rubbish, but if he's doing it enthusiastically because he believes in it, I'm going to listen to him. <laughs> and that, that's the challenging thing. I mean, we've experienced this doing this a podcast as a podcast, but that's the challenging thing about doing a virtual presentation because I haven't done a lot of in-person talks. I've done a few. And boy, oh boy, it makes such a huge difference to have those actual people in the room looking up at you while you're talking. It, and getting I mean, that it, feedback, you know. I'm looking at you for feedback, you know. It's instantaneous. Amy, you know, it's really yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah. It makes a big, big difference. I mean, it's intimidating. I mean, I, that's that's really the big advantage to Toastmasters, in my opinion, is that it helps people get past that number one fear, that fear of public Well, you've got speech. a small, very supportive group, and none, none of the every, – every one of them gets up and speaks. Yeah. So, you know, everybody's got a chance to be uh, attacked, but nobody attacks anybody. They just, you know, commend, right. recommend, commend, um, and and that's it. You know, they fill in a, a form, and, you know, it's it's done and dusted. You either passed or you didn't. And uh, Exactly. I remember I did my talk first time every time um, from beginning to end before I became a Toastmaster and people loved my stories. They came back to me years later and said, Oh, I remember that one where you were, <laughs> you were in that campsite telling those stories. And, you know, I was like, what? I don't remember telling that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> that talk. <laughs> but, um, you know, if you capture people's imagination with stories, um, yeah. it's, it's, 
it, you know, it's very powerful, very, very powerful. Well, that's part of what I was trying out. I, I was telling a story about, well, first of all, I was sharing some stories in brief, little one paragraph stories from actual recent college students, including some who are currently in college that I've been collecting, uh, talking about the stresses and pressures they're dealing with and, and how it has affected them. Um, and then I started to tell my own story of what it was like for me back in the 1970s when I went to college. And uh, the thing that was particularly poignant about my story, I don't think I've ever told you this. I, I certainly, This is the first time I ever told a story in a public se setting like this, was um, my uh, freshman year, I was in a four-man room. So there were four of us in one room. No, there, there weren't like different rooms in a suite. It was all one great big room. And two of them ended up being the biggest drug dealers on campus. So <laughs> as you can imagine, I didn't get a lot of sleep. There was a lot of traffic coming through the room, uh, partying till all, all hours of the night. And um, it was a pretty stressful environment to live in. So, I mean, hmm. I went into much more detail than that. But You, you know, the yeah. interesting thing is, Walt. What's that? You must have been in vibrational harmony to be able to land up there. Yeah, well, tell me about it. Yeah. <laughs> That's the interesting and in fact, part. <laughs> that, well, that was that was part of the the setup for it because I um, I start off the talk, my part of the talk where I'm telling my own story, describing what I was like in high school, because in high school, I was a tall, skinny wallflower. I basically was afraid of my own shadow. I didn't converse with anybody, and I had no idea what I wanted to do. I, I we probably would have been up. good friends, Walt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hear similar, similar hear stories in my background there. <laughs> <laughs> and the bottom line was I didn't like high school at all. I didn't like – I mean, the only reason I went to college was because you, that's what you did. You went to college. It wasn't uh, will I go to college. It was you just go to college. There, there was no – you know, end of end of statement. It was just like that's it. Mm. You, you, that's what you do. The you natural progression. Yeah. It was the natural progression, right? And did I want to go to college? I didn't know what I wanted. I literally had no. I was aimless. I had clueless. I had no passions. I didn't know myself very well at all. I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. And now I had to decide what you know final decisions to make about the rest of my life in terms of what college to go to. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know what to do. My parents didn't know how to advise me. Um, the only advice I got was uh, in my high school was from a guidance counselor who gave me a, a piece of paper with a list of possible careers on it, said pick from one of those. That was his recommendation after having met with me for 15 minutes. That was the only time I ever met with him my entire time in high school. So, I mean. He, he this knows is, you well after 15 minutes. Oh, really, really well. Yeah, let me tell you. You know, so. But well, he did most know, of the talking. <laughs> but that pretty much summarized my high school. That that mm. experienced my that was that was my twelve years of school was just the clueless leading the clueless. That's what it felt like, you know. So I didn't know what I I wanted. I didn't know what I liked. I knew I didn't like what I was doing. I didn't like any of my my current environment. And so, like you say, when it came to go to college, I ended up in a college where I liked my environment even less. <laughs> <laughs> I found all kinds of ways to dislike my environment. Get me out of here as quickly as possible. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, it, it, I it was is, also it is a very, it. Uh, it's a very scary part or time of your life where everybody kind of makes that out that it's such a big decision of what you've got to choose and where you've got to go. And, you know, you've got to support yourself and the parents are going to kick you out of the house and all yep. that kind of stuff. <laughs> 
It is true. Um, it, it is. It is quite. Um, and and I really think that parents should <clears throat> allow their kids to stay longer, and I think they are in general. Things um, are shifting. There's no doubt yeah. about that. Um, but, and you know, kids or, or students even shouldn't shouldn't be worried so much about you know accommodation and all that stuff. They should just be a lot freer, I think, to do many things, um, especially, <clears throat> especially socializing. I think the social aspect of university is probably more important than any of the studies that you'll get there. I'd say Interesting that you should year, mention that. Go do a year of university at least just for the social aspect. Um, that, that, it's really interesting that you said that because one of my key points at the top of the talk was the tremendous value of social connectedness in terms of building one's self-esteem. I mean, that was like key point. So there we are on the same wavelength once again. <laughs> you know, I met so many incredible diverse characters. Um, I had one guy who was into the occult and mm. girls were coming to him and saying, make this guy love me. And then he does it. And then, and then, and then she comes back and says, make this guy not love me anymore. <laughs> he's terrible. <laughs> and he warns yeah. them there's going to be a price if he's... You know, we see that a lot, that. too. I we mean, see I, that I even actually without had... guys who are playing with that. <laughs> oh, God, yes. I mean, I, I was interacting with somebody, you know, the, the usual Facebook question. I want to get my ex back, you know, that kind of thing. And I was recommending to her that she consider not asking for that and explaining that there were a lot of other people who had posted about how they had done that, wished that they hadn't mm. suggested she go look at that. And she said, I never thought of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, know, you something actually. Yeah. Um, some, this, be, before I decided to do this, uh, when I thought we were going to start the show together, I had a, a couple of questions I picked up and I wanted to run them by you to see what you think about, because talk about questions that people ask about on Facebook a lot. This one, shows up in a lot of different ways. Can we manifest stuff for other people? That's the question that keeps coming up. It, it may be, you know, wanting to help a loved one. It could be trying to help, uh, you know, somebody gets, get well who's sick. I mean, it could be trying to help somebody who's struggling through some sort of a, uh, I don't know, poverty or drugs or almost anything, but people wanting to manifest things for other people. What, what's your take on that? So the answer to that is, are you an influencer? What is an influencer? It's such a strong belief that they can help in that situation with so much clarity that the other person can lean on that vibration. And then you might say, he's to blame, the other guy, when it's not really. It's you who have allowed their alignment to guide you to where you're going. So it may seem like that the other person is doing it, but it's not really uh, because one, the, the individual's own alignment <clears throat> is far stronger than the other person's. And if they didn't want to, they'd be able to break, break that uh, willpower pretty easily. It, it mm. wouldn't be a big problem. Um, and that is the whole thing about hypnosis, which I've also, you know, I've been looking a lot at hypnosis since our, our chat because any gaps in my understanding or knowledge um, uh, because I kind of blocked that whole hypnosis thing from, from a young age. And a, hip, a hypnotist is a strong influencer. You know, mm -hmm. well, let's go out and have a party tonight. 
And you know, I'm not so sure. Oh, come on, we're going to have a lot of fun. There are going to be girls there, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and if you say yes, then I've influenced you. Yes, right. Okay. So, you know, uh, that, that's what a hypnotherapist is in the simplest form is somebody who can influence somebody else and the other person can lean on that alignment. Now, one of the reasons why I wasn't able to be influenced was what you said in, in the discussion when I said I was stupid. Um, <laughs> because you remember what I said, the, that somebody who's stupid can't be hypnotized. Oh, I see what you mean. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so and, and you said to me, you think it's because I've got a strong focus and direction of what I want. And that is true. So I couldn't lean on their, their, their focus and desire of what they wanted for me because I was so clear about my focus and desire of what I wanted. Therefore, I was not able to be, it's a more accurate way of not saying you're stupid. It's just, it, to me, was there's not a very clear or accurate way of portraying it. And the way I'm portraying it now is clearer in my mind. Not, not to mention that it's a bit condescending. We'll skip over that. Oh, part no, no, I don't mind being stupid. I actually, <laughs> I actually, I'd actually prefer to be known as not, as, as not an intellectual, as not a studied person. Um, I'd prefer to be known as a bit simple <laughs> because I don't have much respect for the intellectuals of the world and, and the educational system of the world. I really have very little time for it. And, um, and to me, you can make simple observations with common sense and move forward tremendously in your life without any of that stuff that society this is true. pushes on you. And um, I have no time for all that. It's just... To me, if if the lecturer at any time during the university stage <clears throat> was boring, I used to go sit out in the court or just skip the lecture. You know, if somebody wasn't speaking with passion, and there were quite a few of those, <laughs> um, I would just skip the lecture and I'd just go sit outside. I spent a lot of my time not in not in the lecture hall because it was just not very interesting <laughs> for me. So, um, you know... Uh, but when there was a passionate guy, man, I so enjoyed them and appreciated and respected them, you know, and I had some still strong emotional feelings towards those individuals because they really helped. Even if it was in different subjects that I wasn't that passionate about, um, I still had so much respect for them. And, you know, the whole system is broken. So <clears throat> teachers get paid very little compared to many other industries out there. So you, you're going to get the guys that are very good teachers who are not going to stay around, are they? They're going That's to go true. elsewhere. Yeah. So you're going to get left with the dregs. You know, you don't pay them peanuts, you get peanuts, you know. That's the whole story. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, I've just lost the entire audience of teachers who are listening. <laughs> I know, but, uh, you know, it's the way I found it. And I just call a spade <laughs> a spade. And, uh, you know, that... That's the way it is. And I tell you, I'd say a huge portion of my teachers in South Africa in my day, which was a long, long time ago, <laughs> 30 years ago, um, were not passionate about the subject. I remember I, I've told you the story of why I call myself occasionally King Louis. But I'll tell the, the listeners again, because I haven't mentioned the story probably for a long time. To be honest, time. I don't remember the story. So, no, I'll, okay. I'll so um, I'm at school and I've uh, are we over time? Have we got time for this? No, we're fine. We're fine. Okay. I started late because you were there. So I figured, okay, I'll wait and yeah, wait yeah. and wait. Well, he's not there. Okay, okay we'll start. <laughs> no, no, fair enough. I just wanted to know if we're going over the hour. Well, so, we got about yeah, uh, 10, 11 minutes. It's a really nice left. story. Um, yes. Yeah, so no, we got time. Um, a lot, often people would say, oh, 
is, is that because of the Lion King or something, you know, I call myself King Louis or whatever. Um, they came up with many other reasons. But the reason I called myself King Louis is because in Standard 7, which is about 13, 14 years old <clears throat> in South Africa, uh, we had this history teacher that was boring as anything. Okay, mm. I mean, literally open your textbook, read from here to here, answer these two questions, and that's the end of the period. Bye. And that's it. She didn't even read it to us. <laughs> that was our I, I had a few of those. And, and a lot of them were in college, by the way. I just wanted to mention that fact. But <laughs> And uh, suddenly she vanished. And I was like, okay. I, I wasn't really confused or concerned or anything. It was just like, hey, they must do what they want to do. But this young guy came and he was strong body and full of energy and and uh, wore these really, really tight pants that showed off a little bit too much and the girls couldn't take their eyes off him. <laughs> <laughs> but he was just bursting with energy and he taught us the French Revolution. Uh-huh. And I was absolutely fascinated with it. He t- taught it with such enthusiasm and vigor and verve. You know, and uh, I learned about um, the French Revolution. I learned about King Louis the Sixteenth. I learned about Maria Antoinette's wife, and um, of course the beheading and the whole thing. And it was just so amazing. And then by the end of the year, bang, we left. He left. Everything just vanished, and I actually went to another school. But um, it was that bad of an experience after that. I was so enjoying (laughs) the whole the idea that he was called Louis um, that I called myself King Louis after that because I felt a real connection with King Louis the Sixteenth. So I thought it was cool. And then later on in life, I marry my wife, and her name, interestingly enough, is Annette. And Maria Antoinette was sent to marry the king of france by the austrian queen maria uh, of the day now i called myself king louis jokingly my wife happens to be annette which is close to maria antoinette so and guess what my wife's mother's name is maria of course of course (laughs) of course (laughs) So, um, I've got this whole thing about, uh, I've always had this crick in my neck and I know why now. (laughs) (laughs) Somehow I don't think that would uh, be a problem. I think I would actually remove the crick and everything else, but, (laughs) but, uh, you know, I I don't care if it's true or not. If I was or wasn't, it doesn't make any difference to me. And as, as Abram would say, maybe you just tuned in so much with this great teacher to the yeah. vibration of that and you aligned with it for a while. And that's, that's it. So um, Which is a great I'm not reason, saying I was King Louis the 16th, by any chance, I wouldn't do you know. Well, you could always go for the 14th or 15th. I mean, they're good. I you know. know. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, it was just a really interesting coincidence set of coincidences that landed up there, you know, no kidding. Yeah. Like, you know, queen of Austria called Maria, my, my wife's mother also called Maria, you know, the whole, the whole gambit was just like amazing. It's like, wow, wow, wow. So I have <laughs> I to ask, put if, you, if you're, if you're King Louis, does she think of herself as Marie Antoinette? Um, you know, she had, she identified with it cause we read a book. She did book on it. Yeah. I, I, okay. I, I took out a book. It's a more spiritual look at the life of, um, 
King Louis the Sixteenth and Marie Antoinette and their son, and they were advised by spiritual guides to, you know, use their son to, um, uh, to 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 bring the country together, and Marie Antoinette refused, and you know, she had millions of shoes and. <clears throat> all that kind of thing. And when I look at my wife, she's like completely the opposite. of what <laughs> It's like a complete absolute opposite. She can Not knit, sew, so crochet, bake, cook. She can do anything, but, and she never buys lots of shoes. Well, she can um, crochet. She can play the role of Madame Lafarge. I mean, if you really want to put yeah. the roles around. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it was just really interesting. Um, she she related a lot to that book as well. It really felt a connection there, but it doesn't really matter. You know, I don't care if it was, wasn't, is, isn't. Um, uh, it's not important to me at all. <laughs> but well, I, I think it's fascinating, though, because mm. obviously the whole reason you were so strongly interested was because of the passion of this teacher who was a hunk to the girls in the class, but to you, he was just a great presenter. And it was the passion that you were writing. And I, I can yeah, get that. Yeah. I see that. Because passion can carry you a long way. I mean, for me... That, that the passion French can draw vibrationally things to you which you would yeah. never dream of. And, and this is a good example of the kind of things that it, it'll do. And these passionate individuals in your life can do that to you when, when you bump into them. Because uh, the first person I ever had my epiphany, I told you many, many time long long time ago probably two or three years ago now um on the podcast um my first epiphany was <clears throat> i was i was hi hiking and camping and we were camping around a fire and this lady had come from johannesburg and she sat around the fire with me everybody else had gone to bed and we were chatting we were having this really deep conversation and you know it was one of those first conversations where somebody was actually feeding me stuff that i was looking for about life the universe <laughs> and everything and she brought in health nutrition um she brought in mental focus she brought in breathing she brought in and that was so you know my stomach was all in knots and i was so excited and near the end of that chat i said to her why don't more people speak like this and she said to me because they're scared and it was like a huge light bulb moment <laughs> Mm -hmm. I don't have these deep conversations because they're scared. And it's like, wow, now I know. <laughs> um, and that's true. That's very true. People are scared and, and they're easily scared off. And I know that because I was one of the scared ones, the really, really scared ones for a long time, for many, many years. It's and I wanted to touch scared off. <laughs> well, I want so to many... touch on another point that ties into this, too, because yeah. the passion of that teacher was a very, very important thing, not just because of how he captured your imagination and your attention i mean for me the french revolution was a topic i wanted to stay away from entirely and i'm sure it's because i had a teacher who taught more like the other one who said read the workbook and that was about it you know yeah. that, that probably made him that well that plus the beheadings that would turn me off on, under any circumstances but uh the fact is if you have somebody like that who is so invested i guess it's the best word invested in the thing that they're talking about it doesn't even matter if they're factually wrong in what they're saying, it doesn't matter exactly. if, if they, if they screw the story up, it doesn't exactly. matter. None of that matters. Mm. The only thing that matters is they're passionate about it. Passion carries a long, long way. So mm. to get back to the original question that I asked you, which was about the ability to influence others, the passion, I think it's really what the point was you were bringing up originally when you brought up the story. The passion is the biggest influence we have on others. That passion is how that vibration really, really, really gets going in a big way. 
if you want to be a good salesman, Walt, bring the passion in. Bring the passion. That is the number one thing that you need yeah. to do. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's where a lot of people struggle with. You know, they join these network marketing companies, but they don't have a passion for the products. <laughs> well, that, that ties into <laughs> that ties into the purpose behind my talk, because my talk is aimed at, at college students who are dealing with stresses and pressures. But really, the purpose of my talk is to teach the idea of building self-love, because mm. when you build self-love, that's where passion comes from. Passion comes from loving and knowing yourself and feeling really good about yourself because the more that you do that, the more you take interest in stuff because you're on a high vibe place. And so one just leads to the other in a really big way. So for me, I want to actually get in front of, of um, MLM beginning salespeople at some point and teach them about building self-love. I remember remember what it was like in my own case of just trying to do sales at a point where I was just still the wallflower. And couldn't mm -hmm. handle most of that kind of thing. Why? Because I had no self-confidence at all. I had no self-love. Well, not no, but I had very little self-love going on. And you, you just can't build up a passion if you don't have that self-love going on. So anyway, it's a little bit of a tangent, but that's where I wanted to go with it. No, it sounds great. Sounds great. Yeah. Um, the other thing I wanted to just tie in quickly about my story around the fire was all those things we talked about around the fire. Mm. If you look at my life, it's exactly what I did. I went into health and nutrition, <laughs> went into breathing, I went into um, all that stuff. Everything in that one conversation around the fire, I drew vibrationally to me all different ways and places and times to get those experiences in. That is cool. That's really cool. Yeah. And if you well, and if if a lot of people go back to their past and look at those passionate conversations, yeah, they will, they will see a similarity in what they've manifested along the way. Well, it's hard to notice because we don't normally think about that. Geez, I'm going to maintain my memory of this particular event so that I can check it later on. We don't do that. You know, that's not the way we tend to think about things. So it's cool when you can make that kind of connection. But you know the law of attraction when you use emotion with it, mm -hmm. it amplifies everything. So that's yes. the point I wanted to get across. Yeah. Yeah, it's really true. Yeah, it amplifies it in a big way. Well, that's what passion is all about, isn't it? Passion's about massive amounts of emotion all building up around X, whatever X might be. <laughs> yes. X marks the spot. <laughs> X marks the spot. That's right. Sometimes you can't get the X off the spot, but that's okay too. Anyway, um, I wanted to uh, take about 10 seconds to remind people to share the LOA Today app. We are trying to continue to distribute that and get more and more people uh, sending in their questions and comments because we like to make that the basis of our conversations here on the show. Also, I want to alert people there is a new version of the app that is out. It is updated to uh, reflect changes. Um, obviously, with David Strickle no longer doing the Tuesday show with me, Dean McMurray is now the new co-host on Tuesdays. So that's been reflected. And I've created a new page that shows uh, former co-hosts and so forth. So that's all updated. And I mentioned that because if you are an Android owner, you'll need to uninstall and reinstall. There was a little glitch with, with the way we hooked in the old app, and that has to be changed. So there's going to be a new version that's out in a day or two. Take advantage and, and uh, download the new version of the app. And with that thought in mind, thanks for dropping in for the last half of the show, Louie. That was good. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really Thank, Thanks for rescuing me from, from the rest of the talk because the talk was really falling apart because I, I had too much material and not enough time to do it, and I didn't know what to do with it. But thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you for the listeners who are putting up with it. I appreciate that because without you, I wouldn't have a podcast to be able to do this, too. So thank you for letting me torture your ears. We'll see you all next time here on LOA Today. Goodbye. Everybody. Take care, everyone.